You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning, New City. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the members here. Um, It is my privilege and honor to get to preach to you this morning. So um, thank you for joining us for worship. And um, uh, I look forward to looking at God's word with you today. Um, If you were here last week, you would know that we started a new sermon series that's going to go through the month of July that's looking at uh, who are we? really. What is our identity as human beings? Um, So we're going to be taking five weeks to look at what is the Christian identity? Where should we find our sense of self um, as Christians? And last week, uh, Keith preached on uh, our identity as being adopted children of God. This week, we're going to be looking at what it means to be united in Christ. Uh, What does it mean to be in Christ Um, is a term that you'll see frequently in scripture. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, before we start to dive into God's word and look at what union with Christ is, let's let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, your spirit moves where he wishes and where you know is best. Please send him amongst us this morning as we hear from your holy and perfect word. May he work uniquely in each of our hearts according to your infinite wisdom and love. I pray that Jesus would be exalted in our time together as your spirit does his sanctifying work. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I wanna read a few quotes about our topic this morning, the topic of union with Christ. Uh, These are quotes from theologians, authors, church leaders. You'll probably recognize some of the names. Uh, But here's a couple of them. Uh, John Murray wrote this about union with Christ. Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. John Calvin, and you have probably heard that name. He said that union with Christ has the highest degree of importance if we are to understand salvation correctly. Uh, James Stewart, he said, union with Christ, rather than justification or election or eschatology, or indeed any other great apostolic themes, is the real clue to an understanding of Paul's thoughts and experience. (coughs) Anthony Hokema wrote this, once you have your eyes opened to the concept of union with Christ, you will find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. And then finally, Charles Spurgeon, he said, there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. So there's more quotes where that came from, but I think you get my point. I read these to stress the importance of this topic. And I want to make sure from the outset that we understand what union with Christ is. 
Union with Christ is not just a part of our Christian identity. A lot of the other topics that we're gonna be talking about in this sermon series are aspects of our identity. Um, I would argue that Union Christ is not. It's the foundation of our identity. And it's not just one of the many blessings that we get from God, it's the source of all of them. Think about adoption, justification, redemption, sanctification, communion, all of those other big theological words. Union with Christ, um, or the reason that they are all true for Christians is because of our union with Christ. Union with Christ describes our relationship with Jesus. If, if I could define it, that might be the simplest and most comprehensive way. It's, it's a description of our relationship with him. It describes our conne connectedness with Jesus as Christians. And I hope that makes sense. It's not a thing so much as a relationship status. Um, not like Facebook, obviously, but. Um, now, this might seem like an overly nuanced theological point for me to make, but it's not. Because hear me out, Paul harps on this. He says things like, in Christ, together with Christ, raised with Christ, alive in Christ, all of these kinds of phrases he uses over 160 times in just his letters alone. And they are all meant to point us to this concept, this relationship that we have with Jesus. It is the lens through which we are supposed to understand Paul and all of his teaching. It's the way he viewed the world. In a way, it's the way that he saw his relationship with Jesus and it's the way that he wants us to see our relationship with Jesus. And Jesus himself taught us to view it this way as well. Um, I'm not preaching on this subject, but, or this, this passage, but John 15, go home today later and take a look at what Jesus says in John 15. He's talking about him being the vine and we are the branches grafted in to the vine, and he's talking about this exact same concept. So it's not just unique to Paul. Jesus taught, taught it as well. But why do I stress all of this before we even get to our sermon text? It's because I think that far too many people misunderstand how our relationship with Christ should look. And I think it's because far too many people miss out on the true joys of the Christian life for that very reason. Jesus isn't some army general far from the battlefield sending his soldiers off to fight and giving them orders from a distance. He isn't some distant figure just handing down orders for us to obey. Yet it seems like a lot of people view the Christian life that way. Jesus died to save us. People, people do get that. But much of our lives are still spent seemingly on our own. Jesus died 2,000 years ago, and for many people, that's as close as he actually gets to their daily lives, even as Christians. He gave us a list of do's and don'ts, and his memory is meant to motivate us to stop ourselves from sinning today. That's how we can view it. And as long as it seems to work out most of the time, we get his get-out-of-jail-free card. Does that experience sound familiar to you? Does it, does it feel that way sometimes, where he seems distant and you're on your own? He's not a present personal savior who people connect with on a daily basis. New City, that's not how Paul 
wants us to view our relationship with Jesus. And it's not how Jesus wants us to view our relationship with him. That's not union with Christ. Friends, if if that is how you are viewing or experiencing Christianity, my deepest hope right now is that that would change this morning. I want us to embrace a different picture of what it means to be united with Christ. And our plan to do that is by looking at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. So feel free to turn there in your Bibles now, if you've got them. My structure for the sermon is pretty straightforward and simple. You'll probably see it pretty clearly from the passage. First, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3, and we're going to be looking at how we're going to be looking at who we were or are apart from Christ. Then second, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9 and going to look at how the Father changed that relationship with Jesus. And finally, in verse 10, we're going to consider who we are or can be in Christ. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. If I could, we're going to, have, we're going to read it now. So if I could, could you stand for the reading of God's word and listen as I read it? This is God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you want, in, once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, <laughs> carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be seated. All right, let's get into it. Who were or are we apart from Jesus Christ? We just looked at verses one through three. They tell us. Paul paints a very stark and bleak picture of who we are apart from Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not gonna read it again because we just read it, but just glance at those verses again, verses one through three, and just take a look at some of the things that Paul says about those who are apart from Christ. He says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are followers of the prince of the power there who is Satan, sons and daughters of disobedience. We are driven by the passions of the flesh that is our sinful desires. We're children of wrath. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of my time focused on this section of the text, but we can't rush past it. To appreciate who we are in Christ, we have to accept who we are without him. So, um, 
So that's why we want to at least stop and pause and consider what Paul is saying here. And the reality is that there are some of you here this morning who this describes your situation. This describes your, your posture and state before God. So let's consider what Paul is telling us here. First, we have to deal with the debt issue. It's the first thing he says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. How is someone dead while they're clearly still alive? <laughs> I mean, it's, isn't it an interesting idea? Like he's talking about all of humanity apart from Jesus. And the very first thing he says is, you are dead. Even though if you are listening to this letter being read, then you're clearly still alive. What Paul is doing here is he's not talking about physical life. He's talking about spiritual death. When the Bible is talking about life and death, oftentimes it's talking about one's relationship with God. Life is communion with him. It is connection with him. It is fellowship with God. Death, on the other hand, is alienation. It's separation. It's, it's distance from God. This is one of the key realities taught in the Bible. Being alienated from God is equivalent and treated in scripture as dying. Now, that should strike us because that should emphasize to us how significant and perilous and terrible it is. Nothing is worse than being separated from God. And I, and I wanna ask you that this morning. Do you believe that? Does that really feel like the worst possible thing you could ever experience? Or let me put it in another way. Many of you have probably heard this question before, but it's still a good one to think about. If heaven were a place where you could have anything and everything you wanted except him, God is not there, would you want to go there? Is that a place that you would be happy and content in? Anyone tempted to say yes? We, we are. Of course we are. The question gets at the heart, and that's the problem. That question gets at the heart of our biggest problem. A Christian might say no to that proposition, but all non-Christians, all of us, before we were united with Christ, our answer was always yes. It will always be yes. As long as we can do whatever we want and have whatever we want, we don't need, Je we don't need Jesus. We don't need God. We don't want him. That is our fundamental problem as human beings since the fall. That is why Paul describes us as disobedient, driven by the passions of the flesh, as we see in verses one through three, followers of Satan. We are slaves to our sin. We are captive to it. From our earliest years, we have all chosen the things of this world over God. That is our problem. We don't want him. We only want the things that he gives us. And when he wants us to stop doing something that we want to do, we abandon him. I mean, just look at the world today. That message is championed in society today. I mean, I just think about all the, the demands being made in society today for all sorts of sexual freedoms. Even though God's word is very clear on, on those matters, but the reality is people say, it doesn't matter if, if that's what feels good to you, if that's what feels natural, 
then you should have it regardless of what God thinks. He's not even a part of the conversation. That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Friends, without Jesus, we would proudly and happily walk ourselves straight to hell. That's something that's so easy to forget. We would choose this world over God, all the while completely ignoring the fact that everything that we do like in this world first came from God. And in choosing the world, we would deservedly lose him. We would get spiritual death. We would get hell. Do you see that? That is the image that Paul is painting of humanity in verses one through three. Thankfully, though, the passage and story does not end at the end of verse three. Something happened to turn us from the path that we had set ourselves upon. And in short, that is that God changed our relationship with him by uniting us with Jesus. Follow along with me as I read Ephesians 2, verses four through nine. And I'm gonna do something a little bit different as we make our way through the passage. I want to point out things as we go along reading it. We're not just gonna read it all together. This is one of, in my opinion, one of the richest passages of scripture that you can find. And there is so much good here that I want us to look at. And so what I'm gonna do is as I'm reading, we're gonna pause, I'm gonna bring up points, and I wanna help highlight things for you so that we can see what Paul is saying as we make our way through this text. All right, so I think, do we have it on the screen? Okay, so if you don't have the Bibles with you, we'll have it on the screen as well. But yeah, so just listen as I read it, and I'm gonna pause a lot to interject points and things that I want you to notice. All right, sorry I keep holding my water. My throat's very dry today. All right, so Ephesians 2, starting in verse four. So we've just heard that we are dead, we are separated from God, we have set ourselves on a path to hell, but God, beautiful start to verse four, but God, so let's pause right there. Notice, he has to be the one to step in. We couldn't and wouldn't save ourselves. So this, just two words here, speaks so much. This is, we would choose hell. God says, no, I want something else. So he had to be the one to step in for us. Let's carry on. But why would he do that? but God being rich in mercy. So let's just stop and pause for a second just to meditate on the fact that God by his nature is merciful. God is the definition of what mercy is. Oh. Mercy is a withholding of a deserved harm. We, so in this sense, it's like we would deserve punishment, we would deserve hell, and he withholds that punishment from us. God is merciful and, and kind, and he does not want to give that punishment that we have earned for ourselves. Many people wonder why God allowed sin to exist in the first place. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have thought about that question. It's like, if God's omnipotent, why would he even allow sin to happen in the first place? I think this is actually part of the answer. 
because he wanted to demonstrate this aspect of his character. He wanted to be able to show mercy to those who needed it because that's who God is. But let's keep going deeper. What is behind his mercy? Why care about our fate at all? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. This is the source of it all. Why would God be merciful towards people who want nothing to do with him? It's because despite our hatred of him, despite our hostility and just disregard for him, he loves us. He wants us to be with him. His love for us is not dependent on what we do. It is simply because he is a loving God and he wants to extend that love to humanity, to his people. So God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, okay, pause there, restating the very bleak state that we're in, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You guys, here is the gospel. Just as Jesus died on the cross and he was raised from the dead three days later, so are we together with him. Paul is finally speaking of our union here. God the Father has taken those who were alienated from him, dead in their trespasses and sins, and he has brought them into communion and fellowship with him, into eternal life. How does he do that? By uniting them with Jesus in some way. But let's look. He interjects himself here. So he's saying, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God this, did this. By grace, you have been saved. You guys, this is the other side of the coin that mercy is on. We have mercy on one side where God is saying, I'm going to withhold the punishment and the harm that you deserve. So I'm withholding something bad. Grace is the other side of the coin. It is saying, I'm going to give you something good that you don't deserve. Do you see that? He's withholding the bad and he's offering the good. And in both cases, the bad was deserved and he takes it. The good was not and he offers it to us. Our union and all of the blessings that come with it are an undeserved gift, you guys. So we continue. By grace you have been saved and... He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By uniting us with Christ, the Father has also ensured that we will get all of the honor and glory and blessing that he has bestowed upon Jesus. So not only is he taking us out of death and giving us life, he's taking us out of separation and alienation with him into fellowship and communion not only is he giving us himself, but he's giving us all of the glory and honor and blessing that Jesus alone has earned and deserves. So he's not just simply saying, I'm gonna put Christ on the throne, we're going to exalt him, and you just get to be there, you just get to be present. He's saying, no, I'm exalting Jesus, and 
I'm going to exalt you as well. That is what God is saying. And again, this is because we are united with Jesus Christ. Paul wrote uh, this in Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4. He said, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But you guys, again, why? Why do all of this for us? Paul goes on, and he answers that question. So, we know we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We have been made alive together with Christ, and we have been raised up with him and seated up with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You guys, God's goal in all of this is his glory and our joy. This is one of the things that I think is so incredible about how God designed us. God seeking his own glory is not in opposition to us wanting joy and finding pleasure and satisfaction. We were made to worship him. That means that our greatest joy will come from doing so. Our greatest good is not at odds with God's greatest good. Both will be realized when we get to spend eternity marveling over the love and kindness that he has showed us. A lot of people think, oh, well, God seems pretty arrogant that he wants humanity to worship him, but he's God. (laughs) He does deserve that. A lesser being doesn't, but he is God. But even more than that, He designed us so that in worshiping him, in praising him, we find our deepest joy, our deepest satisfaction, our deepest pleasure. It's easy to doubt that. In this life, it's easy to doubt that. We seek it in other things as we've already talked about, but that really is what we were made for. And again, notice we receive all of this in Christ. Jesus at the end of verse seven. Now let's finish verses eight and nine. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Friends, if you are here this morning and you recognize that you are spiritually dead, here is your hope. God offers us life, and he doesn't demand a price from you You don't earn it. You can't earn it. He offers it through faith in Christ, faith alone. Trust and believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he died so that you might live with him in his resurrection. You are saved by his great works, not your own. Don't be sad about that. We want to take credit for things, but you guys, If you're waiting and striving to earn it, you'll never achieve that. This is our opportunity to rejoice in the fact that Christ has earned it for us, that we are saved by his deeds. Let's boast in our great savior together. All right, so that's our passage. We nitpicked through verses four through nine. Let's zoom out, big picture, what does all this mean? 
There's so much here that we could talk about, but let's stay focused specifically on the idea of union with Christ. What did we learn from Paul in just these few sentences? They're long sentences, but it's just a couple sentences. We learned that we have a profoundly personal and relational God. We have a God who loves us more fiercely than any of us have loved anything ever. Isaiah 62, five says this, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. New City, every single day that God gets to spend with you in union, he rejoices like a groom on his wedding day. Every single day, his love and his excitement for being with you does not diminish. No matter what sins you're committing, we don't earn his attention and his company. Just think about it. That is how much God delights in being close to you, like a groom on his wedding day. And that's exactly the kind of picture that we get from Ephesians 2. We see that God would stop at nothing to ensure that we could have a restored and intimate relationship with him. When we are united with Christ by faith, we are bound to him in a way that is deeper and better than marriage. If you take nothing else from this sermon today, that is what I want you to go home and ponder on. Jesus is with you, really. He's the vine and you are the branches. Our relationship is nothing like, as I said in the beginning, the army general and soldiers. In our union, Jesus takes on all of our guilt and shame. And he takes on all of the judgments and penalties that we earn for our sins. All of your bad, he takes that upon himself. And what does he do with it? He dealt with it on the cross. That is why he went there. That's why he endured the punishment that we earned. He has expunged our record before God. Our crimes are paid for. Justice is done. But at the same time, our union, in our union, we receive all of his glory and honor, as we've already talked about. We receive all of his righteousness, all of his holiness. We are clothed with the beauty and majesty of the only one who is worthy to not just stand before the throne of God, but to sit upon it. We gain every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, pro in the heavenly places, as Paul actually says earlier in Ephesians. That's why I said at the beginning that our union with Christ is not just one of our blessings, but it is the source of all the blessing that we receive in Christ. Friends, that is what God has done each time he unites a new believer with Jesus through faith. And that brings us to my final point. In light of what God has wonderfully done, who are we now in Christ? What is our identity in him? Well, we are men, women, and children who are no longer separated from God. We are family to the triune God. We are chosen and loved by the Father. We are united with and blessed by the Son. We are sanctified and comforted by the Spirit. 
That is why the army general analogy is so misguided. That is why so many Christians miss out on the deepest joys of the Christian life. We wrongly think that Jesus' work basically and functionally ended 2,000 years ago. We think that we are called to take upon our own crosses and kill sin, but we're basically doing it on our own. We don't pray. We don't read our Bibles as though it's really God talking to us through it. We act as though we're alone. But you guys, we aren't. I read a Charles Spurgeon quote at the very beginning of the sermon. I wanna read it again. He said, there's no joy in the world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. You guys, the reason Spurgeon said that was because he knew what union with Christ is. It is an active and personal relationship with God each and every day. God desires daily communion with us. He wants to strengthen and comfort and teach you. You have content, constant access to the God of the universe. I mean, just stop and think about that for a moment. We, these incredibly small, weak, fragile, temporary beings on a tiny planet in a small solar system, in a small galaxy amongst like quadrillions of galaxies, I don't even know how many, tons of them, beyond our imagining, we have access to the person who made all of that. And he wants to talk with us. He wants to commune with us. He wants us to feel his love and his affection. Let's look at our final verse in Ephesians 2. Look at verse 10. It says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. New City, that is who we are meant to be. We are meant to be God's agents for good on this earth. And we aren't meant to do it alone. We have each other, but we have him, most importantly. We aren't meant to go through life trying to fight our sin and temptation in our own strength. We're not meant to do that. We aren't meant to go through life trying to do good without help from our Savior. God has united us with Christ so that we have a constant anchor and support always with us. Now, it's easy to say all of that, but what does that actually look like? What does it practically look like to lean on God for support in our daily struggles? What, there's a lot that could be said about this, but I wanna highlight just three things. First, we pray. We say this all the time, but you guys, there's a reason that we say it all the time. It's because it's true. We get to commune with the God who created us, who created all things, and most importantly, who loves us in a way that satisfies like nothing else. When we get to pray, we get to ask God for an experiential awareness of his presence and love. That is ultimately the purpose of prayer, to actually sense God's love and grace. And you guys, if you seek that, he will give that to you. It might not be right away, but if you seek him in prayer, he will reveal himself to you. A healthy prayer life 
also increases our desire for God himself as we experience him, as we get a sense of the love and affection that he has for us, the grandeur of who he is, that grows and increases our affection for him. And at the same time, it decreases our affection for our sins and for our temptations. Praying and growing in our fondness for God helps us combat sin and kill it before it even gets started. So that's one. Two, practically walking with God means letting your union with Christ shift your gaze to eternity. When you are faced with a choice to sin or not, when you're facing temptation, consider your union with Christ. Consider that you have been united with God, that you have been sheltered in him, that you have been given all of his honor and glory and righteousness, and that you are promised to be raised and glorified with him when he returns. You guys, consider that. And it's a reminder that denying our flesh and pursuing righteousness, even when it's excruciatingly hard, because battling sin is at times, it is worth it. We aren't fleeing temptations to pay Jesus back. We can't. No, we are pursuing holiness because the reward at the end is himself. And that's what we want. That's what we are setting our sights on. Blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus said this himself in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is what we, when we reflect our, in our union with Christ, that is what we get to set our sights on and long for and say no to the sin. Because we want to be pure. We want to be righteous. Not because we have to be so that we can see him, but because we want to be like him. So yeah, let your union with Christ shift your gaze to the eternity that has been promised to you. And then finally, repent and have hope when you do sin. You guys, we are inevitably going to sin all of the time. The best Christians do. Union with Christ allows us to look fully upon the terrible, despicable thing that we have done against God own it as something that we chose, grieve it, and still be able to move forward in hope because we know that we are hidden in the justifying works of Jesus Christ. If we don't think we are sheltered in the righteousness of Christ, when we feel like we are still responsible for that sin, we want to hide it. We want to pretend like it doesn't exist. But when we know that we are sheltered in the justifying works of Christ, in his goodness and righteous and holy life, it erases our need to try to hide our flaws and sins from God, ourselves, and from each other. And being able to own those things allows us to repent effectively and turn from them in the future. Trust that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you and will complete the work that he started in you. He will. Now, I want to conclude with one final encouragement in all of this. I've talked a lot about our incredible, how incredible union with Christ is. It shapes our identity. It gives us confidence and joy. 
But what if we lose it? If God united us with Christ, can't he separate us from him again? Maybe you're here this morning weighed down by tremendous sins. Maybe you're feeling like God might have had it with you. He's reached his limit, and maybe maybe he's gonna separate you from him again. End that union. Well, if that's you, hear Jesus' words in John 6, verses 37 through 39. Jesus is talking here about his, his followers. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You almost never see Jesus using language this strong. I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. He's talking about us, you guys. But raise it up on the last day. New City, trust Christ. If you have given your life to him, you are secure in him. He will not let you go. God loves you too much to have it any other way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you. Thank you so much for that reality. Thank you that not only have you made a way for us to be united with you again in Christ, Not only have you made a means for us that we didn't even want in the first place to be restored into a right relationship with you, but because of your love, you have granted it to us and you have secured us in yourself by your Holy Spirit. God, let that amazing truth, that amazing gospel, just cause us all to marvel this morning and to rejoice in our Savior who we get to be united to and gave up his life for so that we could be raised into a new life with him. Father, let these realities sink in. Let us leave here having a renewed and refreshed appreciation for our union with Jesus and our identity in him. We ask this in his name. Amen.